my spot. If you have your Bibles with you this morning or your app, we'll be in Romans 7. Romans 7, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 this morning. Romans 7, verses 1 through 12. If I could give sort of a preface to today's sermon uh, as you find your spot is that if there is one person who is uh, not qualified to preach this sermon, it is certainly me. Uh, this is one of the most difficult uh, themes and lessons that I'm continuing to struggle with and to learn about every single day uh, as a parent. So if you found your spot, we'll be, uh, if you would still, uh, as usual, stand for the reading of Christ's Word. Romans 7 will be in verses 1 through 12. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not. An adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet, but sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for another Sunday in which we can gather as your people to turn our eyes to you, Christ, to give thanks to you, Christ, for your life, your death, your resurrection. And so as we work through these passages, your inspired word, may you breathe life into us. May you speak your words to us. And may your gospel saturate every bone of our body, our hearts, and our minds during this time. So now, may we posture and may we humble our hearts to receive your word. We offer these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> this is the last Sunday of April, which means this is the last uh, sermon that we're dealing with the theme of kid discipleship. 
So we spent two Sundays dealing with what does it mean to disciple our children. And we laid out in that first week what it means to disciple. Disciple means nothing more than to train and equip our children in the righteous and good ways of Jesus. That's what we mean by kid discipleship. And so this being the last uh, Sunday in April, this is the last sermon as we're dealing with kid discipleship. And what we're going to see, I think, and discover today through Romans 7, the verses that we just read, is that it is very difficult to understand how we can breathe the gospel of grace into our homes, but also be able to teach our children the good instructions and the law as well. So let me start with this. Anybody seen M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, 2004 film? Very creepy, no doubt. I had to rewatch it last night uh, and to make sure that my details are right. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan is pretty much our new age O. Henry. Remember O. Henry, the writer? He would write these compelling stories, and it wasn't until the very end that he would show this great mystery. He would sort of flip everything onto its head and turn the plot completely upside down. M. Night Shyamalan is that kind of writer and director and producer, and he created this film, The Village, in 2004 when it was released. And so when we open up, the setting seems to be uh, in a time in the 1800s. We're not given a whole lot of details, but the characters have this settlement-like uh, garb. They're dressed in 1800s apparel. Uh, these families and friends have settled together as uh, this small community. And the plot itself is that these family and friends have settled into this new area for some years now. Children and grandchildren are being born. And yet, they are told that they cannot leave this community for fear of this creature in the woods. And so, here's where the plot thickens, is that one child gets very sick. So they need to send somebody to retrieve medicine from the town not too far from them. So what they end up doing is they send a blind girl to be able to go into the woods because of her pure of heart, but also the fact that she cannot see the creature. And so she goes to these woods, and then she battles against this creature, ends up killing him, and then she climbs over the wall that goes around this large community, and then she retrieves the medicine, she brings it back, the child is treated, the creature is killed, and it seems as if everything's good. Well, there's a turn of events. Come to find out, the elders of this community actually created this little new Amish-like style community. That it's completely collaborated together between these elders to come up with this community, and in fact, we're not set in the 1800s, it's present day. And what has happened is that all of these elders have all lost loved ones because of violence in the world. And what, they do, they, what do they do? They reestablish their own community. One of them sets a large, expansive uh, community, and they board, uh, they build walls all around this community, and they start a new world, a new community, where there's no evil world coming into their lives. And it's at that very end, and I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, that I just go, gave you the end of the story and the, the undoing of the plot. 
But here's the moral that M. Night Shyamalan is trying to give, it, give to us. And it's this. The greatest walls, the most creative barriers that we can build around our children are not the remedy. Did you hear that? The, most, uh, the greatest walls and the most creative barriers that we can build around our children are not the remedy. Because as you see, as this story continues to progress, uh, second by second, is that barriers and boundaries, although very helpful and directive, they give direction for our children, they cannot save our children. Which reminds me of this quote uh, by Paul David Tripp. He's a Christian writer who says, who says this about parenting. The greatest danger to your child is not the evil outside them. It is the sin inside them that is the greatest of all threats to their well-being. If I do not stress that enough in this sermon, I apologize. Because that is the very meat of this message. Is that the greatest danger to our child or children is not the evil outside them. Although that evil does exist. Let us not be naive and say that the evil world that which we live in the broken world in which we live in does have great factors that influence our children. But as this author is pointing out, we first need to deal with the biggest issue, and that is the sin, the brokenness in our own children as we parent and we guide them. Because here's the tension, parents and grandparents. Have you ever asked your child or grandchild this question? Why can't you just do what I ask you to do? Right? Just please, you plead with them, do what I'm asking you to do. Or maybe this has come out of your mouth. Do you understand the instructions that I'm giving to you? Do you understand the directions? We make it so simple, don't we? And yet, there's still disobedience and a running away from those instructions. As great as as helpful and as good and as healthy as those instructions are, we communicate it clearly, and still there's rebellion. That gets to the heart of that quote that I just read. Why? Because there's a brokenness inside our children. There's a brokenness inside of us because we want to rebel against the instructions, however good they are. We want to rebel against them. And so what we're going to see uh, in today's message is exactly that. I think Paul, of course, isn't writing specifically about parenting, but his instructions, his writing to the Roman church directly apply to our own parenting today. Because we have this tendency, and I'm guilty, probably no doubt the guiltiest, is that I can burden my children with rules. Do this, do that. Now go do this. I burden them. But these rules and these instructions and these Directions, they can be healthy at times. We genuinely have the heart of we want to take care of them. We want to guide them in the best ways that we want them to go in their life. Yet, sometimes we can give them so many that they're burdened with what direction to take. So the questions I have for us this morning is how might the gospel of grace, how might the gospel of God's good instructions both saturate our parenting? It's not that we just give them law with no grace. We can't do that. And we can't just give them all this grace and no law, no good instructions. 
because we have to be able to balance both. They have to be able to be a part of our daily lives, our own daily lives, but as theirs as well. So let's look at Romans 7. If you see, uh, Paul starts out with this marriage analogy in the first three verses, and he talks about how this uh, husband and wife are married together, but uh, the husband dies. Well, because he has died, the woman is now allowed to remarry, if she so permits. Because it is the law of marriage, the covenant of marriage together, that binds them together. And so what Paul is saying is, as soon as death happens, that law, that, that covenant is undone. Freeing her to remarry if she wishes. And so it is the death that annuls this covenant. Notice that death itself to one covenant, to this one man, actually frees her to another covenant, to belong to someone else. That's the key to what Paul is about to say in the rest of the verses. The death to this one covenant, this one relationship, actually frees you to another covenant, to another person. Do you hear what Paul is about to unwrap? A death to the old covenant of Israel and a marriage to a new covenant, Jesus, that is wrapped up in his keeping of the covenant fully. So if you look at verses 5 and 6 of Romans 7, you'll notice that what he is bringing out is that this marriage metaphor actually sets the foundation for everything else he's about to write. So while living in the flesh, he says, our sinful passions are roused by the law where at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What he actually has in mind is the full sweep of Scripture. He's not just talking about, right, you know, Jesus has come, now we have this new covenant because of his life, death, and resurrection. His defeating of sin and defeating of death itself. He doesn't have that in mind. He has all of Scripture in mind up into this very moment. And so when he is talking about this flesh, do not hear the word flesh and think your body. Oh, you know, that from head to toe flesh. What he has in mind is talking about the flesh. It's actually circumcision language. He's talking about the flesh itself that is broken, the broken part of who you are. That is why he writes living in the flesh, and then he clarifies our sinful passions. So that broken part of who you are where you're desiring other things that are pleasurable to you, where you're desiring other things that help you out, those selfish desires, whatever they are, that's a part of the flesh. So don't think, oh, that in my body, I'm, I'm flesh. Yes, it's what we typically think today, but he has the broken part, the broken heart that we have, our inclination to do whatever is selfish and turned in towards ourselves. Well, look at verse 6. Well, how does it, why does this matter according to Paul? But we now are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code or written law. Well, how are we released? Well, Christ's atoning death. He gives that in verse 4. Because of the body of Jesus, you now can belong to Him. Because you belong to His death and to His resurrection, you are now in a new relationship to His own life and death 
and his resurrected life. And so there is this atoning death and also the gifting of his spirit to his church. Because he says in verse 6, the latter part, that we serve in a new way of the spirit. Serve what? Well, how I understand this is a love of God and love of neighbor. We serve God and we serve neighbor in the new way of the spirit. And the only way I can know that is because if you read Romans as a whole or if you read any of other uh, Paul's epistles, his writings, you would get that. And so I am bringing in other parts of Scripture to serve God and neighbor in the new way of the Spirit. So let's back up because we can tend to see that, okay, Paul is talking about that we don't want to return to the law because we've been released from it. Well, why? This is a question that has continued to uh, enter discussions for 2,000 years. It was a major question for the early Christians. If you read Acts 15, for example, it is not a new conversation. Well, how can we continue to keep God's good instructions, the Old Covenant, but also realize that the Messiah has come and He has sent us His Spirit to be able to keep His good instructions? So when he says that we don't return to the law, if we were to do that, we were to, it is as if we neglected that the Messiah, Christ, has actually come. We would overlook that. And that's one of the biggest things that Paul has for the people in Galatia in his letter to the Galatians. You don't return to the law because it's like you're just putting blinders on and saying Jesus never came. What we need to do is we don't overlook the new age, the new covenant that has been established because of Christ. We don't look at the law in the same way because we realize that we have the Spirit to be able to keep God's good instructions. Paul doesn't want us to return to the law because the law is bad, that the law is some sort of wrong way. Because you'll actually get that in verse, five, uh, verse 7 and verse 12. What does he say? The law is holy, righteous, and good. So what's the problem? If you read verses 8 through 11 and 13, it's our own brokenness. That's the problem, our sinful nature, that flesh, that twisting of whatever is good into wrong pleasures, where we serve ourselves instead of serving Christ and serving neighbor. So we have this heart that is misdirected, it's misguided, because we have a broken part of our own lives that needs to be remedied and restored. Well, how do we get that remedy and restoration? Well, it's not that we get rid of the law, the good instructions of God. He has plenty to say in those verses 8 through 11 and 13. We don't get rid of it. We don't get rid of God's good instructions. We don't work harder. If I can just, I can just keep working harder and harder, I'll get rid of all sin in my life. Paul's not that naive, and neither should we. It's not that we try to sin less. Well, how do we do this? What we are supposed to be doing, he said, is continually grabbing hold and clenching the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and resurrection of Christ so that His Spirit continues to restore and renew us every day into this new creation that He is making us into. And so when we die with Christ, this is what he says in verse 4 of, of chapter 7, we die with Christ who has died to the law, defeating sin, and being resurrected to his life. If we have professed faith in Christ, 
He is working in us. Even though we cannot see it right now happening, He is working in us to make us look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And so as we die daily, we're married to Christ. We're covenanted to Him. This is where this marriage analogy in verses 1 through 3 are so important. Well, you've died to that covenant and you have been reborn to this new covenant. You've died to the old and now you've been raised to new life to the new, the one that established by Christ. But again, even though sin has been defeated, what does that mean for us? Because we still are broken every day. We still make horrible choices once it comes to parenting or with our spouse or our jobs. We still make sinful choices. So in what way does sin, is sin put to death? Well, if you flip over to Romans 8.1, Paul writes this, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's no condemning power of sin because Christ has defeated that. Christ frees us to serve and to love Him and to serve and love neighbor. And when we love God and we love neighbor in the Spirit, we're fulfilling the law. Did you hear that? When we're serving God, we're loving God, and we're serving neighbor and loving neighbor, we're fulfilling the good instructions of God. Because you can go through the Gospels plenty of times, and when Jesus is asked again and again, well, what's the greatest of the instructions of God? Simple. Love God, love neighbor. And he says this, this is the fulfillment of the law. The, of all the instructions of God. And so it is the Spirit that has been given to us that inclines our hearts to love God and love neighbor. It is that work of the Spirit in our lives that is in, enabling us. It is turning our hearts on to be able to love God and love neighbor as we were called to be. And so let's, as we bring this to an end, let's agree to a few things. I think you'll agree with this. So when I say let's agree, I think I have your attention on that. The goal of parenting is not to make your children or your child better law keepers. It's not to make them better rule followers. If we profess Christ as king, we're not saying, hey, children, you need to keep rules better. You need to be better law keepers. The goal of parenting, is Christian parenting, is to demonstrate the grace and the mercy of Christ to your children, and to continue to invite him and her to be Jesus followers. Not rule followers, but Jesus followers. And so when we do this, we realize that our parenting is not a DIY project. It's not a do-it-yourself. We need others beside us and with us being able to cultivate in them the grace and mercy of Christ, but also the good instructions of Christ as we invite them to follow Jesus. We wish sometimes that we could treat parenting like a DIY project, don't we? Where we start a patio project and we step back and say, done. My child's perfect. I finished it. It's completed. It's not like that, is it? It's actually a long, devoted process. And so there are really five things once it comes to parenting and discipleship. They go hand in hand. And I think you'll see why. Because both parenting and discipleship are committed to Jesus, first and foremost, to Him. Secondly, they're both invested in building strong relationships. 
we're not parents just because we have children. We have children in order to cultivate them and to build strong relationships with them so that we might reveal to them who this Jesus is. Third, both parenting and discipleship are aimed at correction or a concern for nurturing somebody else. If we don't correct our children, there's no way that they'll know the ways of Jesus. There's no way that they'll know who Jesus is at all. And I think it's very intuitive for us as parents to say, we need to correct this action. We need to correct this heart intention that we have, we see in our children. Fourth, both parenting and discipleship are rooted in forgiveness and repentance. Have you ever been humbled so much you needed to apologize to your child? That's a humbling experience. But here's the reality. To be a moral example, to be a spiritual example to your own children, doesn't mean that you must be perfect. There's so much parenting uh, tips out there, parenting books, that we have to be this perfect moral example. We can't be church. We cannot be. Here's what we do. Instead, we point to Jesus, who is the perfect example to follow. And along the way, let's repent to our children often. Let's apologize to them often because what we're showing is that daddy, mommy, granddad, grandma, we're not perfect. And we're going to continue showing sorrow to you. We're going to continue showing regret and lament to you because we're not perfect, but we know somebody who is. And we would invite you to follow this Jesus. And lastly, both parenting and discipleship demonstrate a long-suffering and patience by loving our children no matter what circumstances and events in life. It is a long obedience in the right direction where we continue to invest into our children. And so here's where we end. Just like The Village, the movie that I mentioned a minute ago, where this moral of the story is that external protection, the walls, the barriers, isn't enough. Because walls don't save. It is the brokenness and the sinfulness inside of us that must be dealt with first and foremost. That's us as parents and grandparents, but also our children. And I think Paul is saying a very similar message in Romans 7, is that the law itself, the external rules that we put on our children, they can't save. But the laws are good enough to direct our children, to teach our children of what is good and what is righteous and what is beautiful. Because really what saves our children are not the rules and the laws. It is Christ. So by faith that you are saved, child, so that we might please God and by salvation And once that child continues to understand that they have received faith and they walk in faith, they will keep God's good instructions. Their heart is in the right direction. It is pointed towards loving God and loving our father, our mother, our grandfather, our grandmother, and others as well. And so laws and rules, they don't change or save or redeem. But Christ is the one who changes and saves and redeems. And so we use his instructions and ways to direct our children, to shepherd their steps to the good shepherd himself. And so here's a few questions I have for you parents. These are questions that I really uh, crafted for myself, and I'm going to pass them out to you because these are the questions that I need to remind myself every single day. 
What methods or tools do you use to discipline, to direct your children? Talk with your spouse this week. Talk with those who help instruct your children of what methods do you use to direct and discipline your child or children? Because as you probably know, you can discipline or direct a child, one of your children, and it doesn't work for the other. God has a sense of humor in that. We cannot discipline Garland in the same way we discipline Ezra. It just doesn't work. So it can't be a one-size-fits-all. Here's the next question. What ways do you extend grace with your instructions, within your rules, and within your directions to your children? Because it can't just be law. It can't just be grace. It is how can we extend grace within our own parental instructions and our laws and rules and directions in our home? Here's a hard one. This is one that I've had to really think over this week is, are your disciplines, the directions you give, are they good, just, and holy? If God's instructions are good, holy, and just, and righteous, then hopefully our own instructions in our home are the same way. They're just, and they're good, and they're righteous, and they're holy. Because we don't want to burden our children with rules and instructions that actually turn them away from Jesus. We want to cultivate them in good instructions, just uh, directions. And lastly, how does Jesus enter your conversations with your children in those times of directing them and instructing them? How does Jesus enter that conversation? One of the best tips I was ever given, uh, and I don't practice this enough, but an uh, old mentor of mine once said that when he sits down with his girls, he's got four girls, that would be crazy enough, uh, four girls and he said that each time he sits down with them, if there's some sort of problem between them, he would say, well, after there's uh, an apologizing back and forth, he would end with, well, let's talk to Jesus about this. And so they would pray. They would close that time of praying to Christ about what has happened because he understood and he was instilling in them this simple truth is that everything... Our interactions between siblings and between parents should be at the foundation of Christ and at His cross. And so if there are problems, let's end it with prayer and be reminded that this one, this Jesus, is the perfect example. And He is the one that we continue to point our children to, to extend grace to, even those times they need instructions. Good, holy, and righteous instructions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is always sufficient for us. But so are your holy instructions. They're sufficient for our daily living. And so we can't get rid of the old covenant. Because Paul reminds us that all of that old covenant is good, holy, and righteous. There's all of those instructions, the moral code, all that is good from the Old Testament is there to direct and shepherd us in the ways of you. And so we also have to be reminded, as Paul tells us, that it is through your life, your death, and resurrection that we have been a part, we are participants of a new covenant by faith. 
And so as we lean into you and we cling to you as our perfect Savior, may we be reminded that no laws or rules that we create can save us. No laws or rules that we create for our children can save them. That ultimately all salvation is wrapped up in you. And that as we continue to grow in grace, that we also continue to grow in your good instructions. And so may we point our kids to this and to remind them that there is so much grace even in these instructions that I give to you. There's so much grace that can be extended to you in the times where daddy and mommy mess up, but also grace and mercy for you when you mess up. And so may we continue to cultivate and disciple our children in your ways. Because every parent and grandparent can confess that this is such a difficult task. But it is a worthy task that we've been called to. And so may we continue in that long obedience of serving our children so that they might serve you. And so Lord, we bathe this time in prayer for our, for our own children that they might one day accept you to walk in your ways and to grow in grace. Father, we ask these things and we plead about these things in your name. Amen.